Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is an interesting one because it is not the episode I intended to record. I went to the house of a comedian who uh, was going to be my guest and he had a bit of a breakdown, which uh, I have deleted the audio of. Um, It's just he was not well and I decided that to put him on the podcast would not be a fair thing to do. Then I had the problem of who my guest was going to be. I was about to go and meet Penny Durham, who works for The Australian, is a journalist and an arts writer, and I bullied her into doing the podcast with me. So that's what you're hearing this week on the podcast. We sat in About Life and uh, drank tea and ate some weird chocolate thing made out of avocado. So that's that's the background to this conversation. If you are in Sydney or have friends in Sydney, send them along to Savage on Friday. The 24th at the Comedy Store. I'm filming it. I'm terrified. Uh, It'll be great. And then I fly out on Monday to Edinburgh. I've got a new Zoom recorder. I haven't used it yet, and I'm hoping that that will deal with some of the sound quality issues we've been having recently. Email me on alicerfraser at gmail.com. Tweet me on at alliterative or... uh, Support me on the Patreon. Thank you so much to all of my supporters. It's really good of you and I, um, I'm i very grateful. All right, you're having tea with Alice. I hope you enjoy this episode with Penny Durham. Hi. So we're sitting in About Life. You have a chai tea, I have a rubos tea. The tea is important. Not really. <laughs> but I, 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 I sometimes think that I should put an Excel spreadsheet together uh, and back engineer what topics are covered with what tea types? You might be able to find an association between the choice of tea and the direction of the conversation. Yeah, I don't know if that's <laughs> the case, but maybe certain personality types prefer certain kinds of tea? I'm nodding, which I understand makes great radio. Just tell me when I nod and I'll try well, to say something instead. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, just for our listener? <laughs> Hello, listener. Um, I'm, my name is Penny Durham. I work at the Australian newspaper uh, on Wish magazine, and I write for the arts section occasionally. I write about theatre and comedy mostly, and I'm editing our annual arts magazine called Culture. Hmm. So I was talking with um, Dee Jefferson, who is the arts and culture editor for Time Out the other day and she was saying it's incredibly hard to find anyone who can write about comedy. It's very rare, like it's really not something that's written much about and I'm not sure why that is, although it could be that with other sorts of art forms, other stage art forms, theatre and visual art and music even, not so much pop music but um, classical music Feedback isn't instant, whereas in comedy, the kind of the beauty of it and the curse of it is that your feedback is instant. You could think, well, it, it makes the critic a bit obsolete when the audience is either laughing or they're not, the room is either going off or they're not. But I don't know, I think there's room for, there's certainly room for a lot more comedy appreciation in the arts pages. Sometimes comedy can take a fairly, you know, low form sometimes can take an extremely high form and it's better than a lot of theatre which is um, but things like uh, Heltman's and Sydney Theatre Awards they don't distinguish between any kind of genres of comedy, it's like best comedy be like best music Yeah, 
I find that too, certainly. When someone says they don't like stand-up comedy, I say, what have you seen? <laughs> I mean, what have you seen? What, what Ronnie Cheng does is incredibly different from what Michael Workman does, but they're both brilliant comedians. Yeah. Uh, there's different comedy kinds of that comedy I don't like that's incredibly popular. Like. Yeah. It can be as different as any different kind of writing yeah. and any different kind of performance because it's, there are so many variables. There's the writing style, there's the performance style, there's the subject matter covered and mm. all three of those elements can vary so widely yeah. and you don't expect all writing to... I, I, I like writing. No, I don't like writing. Yeah. I don't like performance. I, like, I quite dig performance. You know, yeah. you should, it's, they sound ridiculous, and the, the comedy is such a wide genre that you can't not. Yeah, one of the things that I think, well, two of the criticisms that comedians level at critics mm-hmm. of comedy that happen too often, I think, is either the the review just discusses the subject matter mm-hmm. without really talking about the performers position regarding that subject matter mm-hmm. or missing the point of the joke if they're using a joke as, a, as an example of a particular kind of thinking or a particular angle or you know whatever it happens to be and then the second thing is the classic well I didn't enjoy it but the audience was laughing <laughs> right yeah. which is sort of what you have to do as a critic if you don't enjoy it but you have to acknowledge that the audience was laughing but if you then give it two and a half stars yeah. that's a really difficult <clears throat> it's very hard to justify your reaction to comedy mm. if you're I've really, I've really got to say I've really been in a room where my instinctive response was completely at odds with the rest of the room you do tend to find I don't know whether you know I have a fairly mainstream <laughs> sensibility but you do find that you the room does take you with it to mm. a large extent. It would be odd to <clears throat> hear a comedy routine and critique it without an audience, for you to be the only person in the audience. Mm. And when you're watching a play or a musical performance, you can be effectively the only person there. You're not hearing what anyone else is thinking. Yeah. In a comedy room, you are hearing what everyone else is thinking or not hearing it, as the case may be. As the case may be, which is, yeah, it's a very interesting one when it comes to festival shows. If you have a very small audience and you are essentially the only person in the room, yeah. that's a difficult yeah. game to play. And it can be... Um, <laughs> I've got a really soft laugh too, and I, I, I sort of... I feel very awkward in, in small rooms because I feel the, the pressure that I should be trying to make more noise, but I can't... I don't make a lot of noise when I laugh, so... Yeah, well, I like you're, big you're quite softly can... spoken as me edging the microphone towards <laughs> you constantly <laughs> might indicate... But, um, yeah, it's, it is, that's an interesting thing that you feel in, like, a, an obligation to the comedian. Yeah. That's an unusual <laughs> thing to feel, I think. Comedians would probably feel that. Mm. But I don't think other audience members well, Comedians will sit up the back way. and take the piss out of each other. But um, yeah. as an audience member, particularly when um, sometimes one's partner, who's also in the comedy writing game and in the comedy performance game, likes to be a good... Be a good trooper and sit right up the front, say, in the very front row. You feel an extra obligation to show, you know, that you're enjoying it. But sometimes when I'm, la- I'm laughing on the inside, but I find it hard to project. And 
bigger crowds can be comforting in that way because you can just sit Sink there and... Sink into anonymity. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah, um, <clears throat> other reasons why comedy is hard to write about. It's very hard to say why something is funny and it's very hard to write about a joke without simply repeating the joke, which is yeah, not great That's writing. the worst thing to do, particularly if you repeat it with slightly the wrong wording, <laughs> yeah. the wording the most infuriating thing, because yeah, the wording and the, the rhythm of it coming thing. out of their mouth is yeah. part of the, the joke. Mostly a joke can, consists entirely in the words in which it is delivered and in, in the sequence of words and in the timing of words. And if you try to give a version of it on paper, it's a disaster. And you also People would never do that with poetry. No. People would never be like that Shakespeare <laughs> to being or not being, whatever. That, yeah. There's some question about that. Yeah. He talks about... Yeah. You know, like, you don't have that. Yeah, that was definitely it. Yeah, you, you can't um, paraphrase humour. <clears throat> and the other thing that reads terribly is um, all the ways of saying something was funny. It was hilarious. It was a side-splitting, rip-roaring... I mean, that just makes you lose the will to live, which is why it must be really difficult to write promotional material for comedy. Even when you're reading a flyer by some, about someone who you know is really like hilarious, you read the blurb and it's just sapping. I find it so difficult to write what I do about what I do. Mm. I mean, not that what I do is the best thing around, but that to give an accurate picture of the experience that somebody will have coming in off the back of a flyer. It's like those year 12 essays where you have to, you know, you have to cite a primary source and a secondary source and you have to discuss a philosophical angle and you have to have one quote from the material and you have to have... And so by the time you pack that all in, there's very little room to actually make an argument or have an interesting opinion. Yeah about anything. So on the back of a flyer, you have to say your awards or any kind of critical acclaim you've had. You have to use a few buzzwords. You have to use quotes from other people to indicate how good you are. You have to use words that are both familiar to people but indicate some level of originality. Uh, And, yeah. And you have to promote yourself in a way that is kind of competitive and, and blowing your own trumpet which is the last thing that most people with a sense of humour want to do about themselves yes because you have to be self-aware enough to be a comedian mm. not all comedians there are a few standout oh, prime sources of just <laughs> arrogant assholeness. but generally yeah what are you going to say what am I going to say about myself I'm funny but also sometimes on purpose not funny like well, it's a complex form of theatre, and whereas plays, you can at least get away with giving a brief set-up of the plot. For a festival comedy show, you can't set up the plot. It, you, it's going to take you on a journey, and you can't really say at the outset what that journey is like. The only comedian that I could think would be quite easily to describe what he does, that sentence wasn't very didn't come out right um, is someone like <laughs> if only you could an audio is someone like Jimmy Carr he gets up and does 200 one liner jokes in, in his deliberately show deliberately offensive yes and very snappy and you know quite outrageously funny but they are one liners and almost every other comedian and he's brilliant at it um, yeah. almost every other comedian doing solo shows is doing something more complicated and harder to sum up and harder yeah. to describe not necessarily harder to do but harder to articulate yes that. 
Yeah, and and unfortunately for me, I don't want to be fitting into other people's molds. Like mm. I'm deliberately contrary in that way. I don't like to be um, bo- boxable. Spent a lot of my life trying not to be easily sum upable, and then you get into an industry where you have to have an elevator pitch about yourself, other than like intriguing, <laughs> different. Like, well, it's, everyone's it's really, different. Like, it's, it's, it's really tough because comedy depends on novelty as well. Like, you just have to watch any kind of television comedy from a couple of decades ago to be just amazed that that was ever funny yes yeah. because it was funny then because it was new we've heard that joke now we've all moved on and we're expecting a twist upon a twist upon a twist upon a twist and yeah. all comedians the best ones do something that you haven't seen before which again the yeah. critical language you've never seen like on the back of a flyer yeah. like nothing you've ever experienced ah eat yeah. a dick like <laughs> it's so presumptuous to tell people what they're going to experience but people yeah. look at the flyer and say well what am I going to experience mm. and then if you put it slightly clumsily and why should I go to you rather than you? And you're about to head to Edinburgh, which is the you know clusterfuck of, of competitive comedy. And I was there a few years ago, and I um, spoke to a few you know, Australian comedians, fabulous ones, who were really just in the middle. I think it was in the middle, or the third week when wow. the, the slump the soul kind of destroying <laughs> part. And, you know, Hannah Gasby and Michael Workman and Celia Picola, who were all smashing it in their shows. But talked to them during the day and they were, the mood was quite, oh, my, why are we doing this to ourselves? Sort of um, standing out there flyering again and again, you know, day after day, all day, in weather that makes... Edinburgh summer makes Sydney's polar vortex look a little on the lightweight side. Um, my, and for the punters, the buzz is just fantastic. Everyone's, there's so much going on, and but you, you're taking, you've got a fistful of flyers, and who am I going to see? Why am I going to see this person I haven't heard of over this person I haven't heard of? And you depend on the flyer, and flyers are so hard to make sense in. Well, my yeah, my current dilemma about my flyer is that I have this flyer with the stripes on my cheeks, um, the savage one, which. I thought was pretty clearly like I thought the message of that image was pretty clear Mm. Um, I went to my designer and said here's a picture of me drinking tea can you make it look savage Mm. like can you make it look a bit like there's simmering fury in my veins I don't know put dirt on my face or what whatever and she put you know the two kind of war stripes on each cheek and one person on Twitter which I don't know whether that's just one person in the world or hundreds of people and one person who could be bothered articulating it said that it was uh, culturally inappropriate oh god right there's always one right and I'm like but which culture mm. what who to whom is it offensive mm. and his argument was that it was offensive to the non-white other which made me roll my eyes, but specifically... Spoken by a very white person, I yeah, Specifically, any culture which has had the term savage derogatorily... Derogatorily? I haven't said that word out loud, I don't think. <laughs> uh, thrown at them. 
in a derogatory way. Um, but, like, in that, do they include the Celts? <laughs> like, because they are blue stripes. Mm. And that was my kind of defensive immediate reaction was like, well, which culture <laughs> is it offensive to? Mm. And it can't just be genuinely offensive. Or can mm. it? I, okay, my slightly sensitive idea is that there is far too much outrage at the moment and it's people being outraged on behalf of others mm. and it's very tiresome I mean almost no one can make any sort of off-coloured joke I mean, people like Jeremy Clarkson should just shut up and, and maybe expect that everything he says is going to cause some sort of outrage but I do think people are really almost bending over backwards to find things to be indignant and offended and um, outraged about and I think sometimes people can People, people are capable of, you know, accepting a joke, maybe taking a little bit of offence and moving on without everyone jumping to their rescue as though people are too delicate to ever accept, you know, off-colour humour. Well, Brendan Burns, who I don't agree with on very many things, <laughs> has made a recent speech. Um, it was covered in the Chortle thing in the UK where he made the good point... Uh, which is that it's an incredibly smug and colonialist thing to do to decide that other people can't take a joke. Yeah. That the only people who are worthy targets of jokes are white men in positions of power because otherwise you're the only punching ones tough enough, right? down. Yes. So the premise of if, if you are making a joke about a quote-unquote minority, mm. which is borderline, if they're a minority in another country or a minority in your country or a minority in the world or a minority in the room yeah. there's many different ways to consider so say you're making a joke about a Japanese person that you presume that that is punching down yeah. like it's just colonial paternalism all over again in that's a that's pretty fucking presumptuous yeah. is to assume that, that, that you're punching down yeah. and there's a similar thing with this idea of cultural appropriation being inappropriate I sort of get it when it's something like the Native American headdress, mm. when it's like a very specific cultural signal. But, for example, like a white person wearing a kimono or something. Again, it's the same thing. You don't find a Japanese person wearing a business suit cultural appropriation. No. Do you? Even though it's arguably exactly the same thing. No. I never thought of that example, but that is a good... So I I get it. I get it, the idea that you're sort of building stereotypes and stereotypes are harmful and da-da-da, but I don't think that's the problem. I think um, people, mostly middle-class Anglo-white people, are a little too protective of um, people who they think might be easily offended but that that is treating those people um, as infantile or naive or too delicate or weak to form their own opinions, take their own offence, take their own jokes and allowing once again them to speak for themselves. Yeah, I think the other side is that it's it's correlation, it's not causation. I think well, maybe it is slightly causation, but even so, it's not the real problem. So, if you're using a derogatory term, 
the idea is that the term will cultivate dehumanization and that then people will treat other people like not people using that word. Mm. The real problem is people treating other people like not people, not the word. Yeah. I think Obama just made that point. It's we haven't ceased to be racist just because we've ceased using the word nigger. Yeah. I mean, he's shocked a lot of people. Oh, my God, he used the word nigger. Yeah. It's like, okay, missing the point it, again. Not even just missing it, like taking the point and completely inverting. The wrong way. yeah. Like miss, missing the point on purpose, really. Yeah. Like, in, within that sentence is the thing you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole outrage thing, it makes comedy a constant, I mean, a, a dangerous game to be in. It, if, you, if you're worried about what people think. But there is always someone... Um, some jokes can, can skate, a very, skate on very thin ice, but they can be... Um, they can wade into dangerous territory and people will take the point exactly the wrong way and um, outrage will follow on Twitter. But you can't always cater to the lowest common denominator as well. No. Like, we rely on comedians to be clever and The people subtle. who hear the word faggot and use the fact that there is that word as an excuse to beat a gay man to death <laughs> are not the people we should be building our social structures around. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is... It's not, it's, it's not a sensible thing to do to cater to the lowest common denominator. There are so few of those people. It's... People are always and have always been worried about what people less well-informed than themselves will think and therefore do. I mean, back in, you know, since Socrates and before, people have been worried of young people today writing, writing that people can read. That's terrible. People get all these dangerous ideas. Yeah, because they won't be able to be present in the experience. That's exactly, yeah, that is actually kind of the problem, maybe, that everything is written now. You know, on Twitter, like that Tim Hunt thing. If you listen, have you heard that audio of it? Yeah, no, I didn't actually listen to it, but I, I know that it is not the way it was instantly put Yeah, so be. written down, and particularly written down with a spin, it sounded pretty offensive. Yeah. If you listen... It's so clearly what it is that it's such a sin to have written it down in the way it was written down. Like it was a real, a real wrong that was done to this man mm. who is, if you listen to what he said, yeah. entirely innocent of the accusation levelled at him. Yeah. But even in the defences of him, they say, oh, it was an off-colour joke. Right. It really wasn't an off-colour joke. In the context, it was a really charming joke. Mm. It was an incredibly pleasant, self-deprecating joke. And in light of the fact that he married a woman who was his lab partner, a very funny joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was delicately delivered, I... and it was sensitively delivered in a non, like a cultural context that he was not part of. So he was very careful to explain it afterwards. There's just nothing wrong with it. And yet, there goes his yeah, career. Yeah, even people who are defending it are saying, oh, it was an off-colour joke and you taken in context and all of that kind of language which you use to defend somebody who's done something slightly wrong. Mm. I genuinely think he did... He, 
he did nothing wrong. And in fact, used a joke in the way it's supposed to be used, which is to diffuse tension, to bridge cultural boundaries, to to address an issue, to draw light to an issue, the issue of sexism in science, which he was against. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh God, we live in this world now. Mm. Which comes back to comedy and the difference between spoken and written language and how humour can exist in a performance that falls absolutely dead on the page when written down. Mm. And it's another way why, how it's difficult to convey what's going on on a stage. Like theatre critics, they've got an established play, they've got a lot of stuff that they can bring to it. They can talk about well, the decor of the theatre if, if they run out of other things to say, but they've probably seen the play before, they know the writer, they, they've seen the actors before, they've seen plays before. Mm. Um, as a comedy writer to convey what's going on on a stage you often think I've got very little to bring to it that doesn't that adds certainly not much that can add to the experience but and certainly little that won't detract from it yeah I was talking about this with Dee Jefferson the other day um, who I mentioned before is the arts editor for Time Out and she writes about comedy and arts and she has difficulty writing about comedy if you write about what Madokine says, you are not writing about what Madokine does. Very good. You, like, if you yeah, say... He talks about toasters. Does yeah, that sound fun to you? No. Chip packets. Yeah. It's this, like, what he's doing, if you are in the room with him and looking at him and the way that he behaves, is he's a guy of African descent who is deeply Australian <laughs> and middle class... Uh, in his affect Mm. playing with that and playing with this kind of that he's in this like Seinfeld position Mm. he's talking about the kind of meaningless things that Seinfeld talked about from the perspective of this guy who is both alien and more normal and native than I will ever be (laughs) in this particular culture Mm. that's really interesting and really funny and he's really smart, but to say that he talks about chip packets doesn't cover any of that. No. Doesn't cover any of this, like, quite complicated narrative that's going on. Or like Ronnie Cheng, to say that he talks about being angry with his mum for not knowing how to use a computer. <laughs> You're missing his kind of aggressive American-style take on being Chinese Mm. like there's just so much interesting stuff happening that you can't really articulate by describing his jokes Yeah. or even by describing that he sort of sounds angry a lot of the time or anything he does isn't he (laughs) it's one of the most endearing things about him yeah which is that he's so high status on stage yeah yes it's a very powerful presence and you, you but he's not arrogant but, mm. but that's like that's, what, that's what's interesting about what he does is that mm. he plays this arrogant character but you never really think that he thinks you're, that he's better than you even though he's always constantly saying that he's better than you yeah. <laughs> like it's <laughs> an interesting one what do you make of persona in comedians when comics take a, a character on stage and you're never quite sure how much of it is them is it you yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I move in and out of the Do you feel that you're very much you when you're on stage? Ooh, it depends. It depends on what the joke is, Mm. right? Uh, I'm not naturally a very funny person. (laughs) So I can't just go on stage and be me and expect people to laugh. But I can say things that I think are funny and people will laugh. But sometimes the things that I say that I think are funny, I think they're funny because I would never say them. Right. Or because they're things that I've seen other people do that I want to articulate. And the only way to articulate them in a way that isn't punching down is to put them in my mouth. I will espouse ridiculous attitudes that I don't hold to show their ridiculousness in a way that saying this dumb bogan on a train said this or believed this won't be funny and will be offensive and is punching down. Like, mm. you, have so to, you have to transform it from what would be an anecdote into something that you can perform. An, yeah, an, an anecdote and, is And ideally I perform it in a way that people can tell that it's not an attitude that I actually espouse. Yeah. But if you write it down, mm. what I've said out of my mouth as my opinion and it gets taken out of context, I'm going to be the one saying, look, it's meant ironically. It's ironic. It's an ironic joke. Yeah. And when you say it's an ironic joke, you sound like a racist. <laughs> even if, even if you know, like, even you're talking about public transport, like, you inevitably sound like the bad guy. Yeah, I think, um, when you're in the territory of having to defend a joke, it's, you're never going to win from there. Yeah. What did you... Uh, here's another contentious one. Ray Badron's famous, unfortunately infamous... Unfortunately famous thing. Rape joke. Yeah, it fell right... I mean, the rape joke itself is hilarious. I find it funny. It's a really I find, I find funny joke. I do it, and it was funny. It's a really funny joke, yeah. and it is... It's funny for that kind of layered reason which is, it's arguable, and I've heard people vehemently disagree on whether he says, I look, I, I can do rape jokes because he thinks he looks like a rapist or because he is the, has been the victim of rape. Oh. It's ambiguous in the joke. Oh, I never picked up that ambiguity. I thought What's I... funny about the joke is that he uses that word and it's a trigger word and a shock word. And that he so clearly looks harmless <laughs> and happy. And it's just a beautifully structured joke as well. Yeah. And it's a sort of a, it's a ridiculousness. It goes from reality, reality, ridiculous. As though somebody were genuinely making that argument. That's what's ridiculous about the joke and that's why it's a funny joke. Mm. It would be marginally less funny but funny in the same way if he said I can make murder jokes Mm. you know yeah because it's not a real life scenario and it's not a commonly used defense you know you hear you know someone say well you can't use that word I can use that word in almost every context except that and so it's funny that's my argument for that. I think the offensive thing in that situation was that he took that heckle badly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But again, like, 
it's so difficult to understand from the audience how much adrenaline is pumping through your system when you're on stage, how much your comfort is riding on a razor edge, and how much it feels like being attacked to have your craft um, disrupted. It's... I imagine a similar or an equivalent analogy would be something like there's a painter and you just shove him. <laughs> like you knock just, his brush out Yeah, you knock his brush. Yeah. There's a smear across the work. It's, it's, all, it's all gone wrong. It's all, it's all wrong. You're ruining it. Everything's... Yeah. It's just, this, the, the reaction is so... Oh, sh- shit. What's happening? How do I fix this? Can I ever get this back? And in this instance, he couldn't get it back. Uh, he tr- tried to ride himself, couldn't manage it, had alienated the audience, was uncomfortable, they felt he was uncomfortable, they shut down on him. And as he walked off stage, he turned to the woman like, good on you for standing up for yourself, which is what he wanted to say, but also you need to fuck off and die, which is what he wanted to say. <laughs> you know, like he, on a philosophical level, he understood that she had an objection and she, he didn't want to attack her for that. But also, fuck you, you ruined my set. Yeah. and it's just before the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I'm trying to get audience and this is my job <laughs> like yeah. you can't it, I don't know I, when you go to a comedy gig should you take what ever should you take what you're given and understand that it's someone performing and being funny and I should let them do that and have respect for it um, regardless of even if the joke weren't funny so I, th- I think she, I, I think the heckler took the joke the wrong way it didn't get it like we were talking before missing the point it's this it was a completely self-deprecating joke he wasn't saying rape was funny yeah um, it wasn't you know no it's be, not saying that rape is funny um, but it is saying that the word rape is funny yeah, or that the rapists are a figure of fun, right? You know, yeah. ra- rapists are, are a de- deplorable, but, you know, person who you can have contempt for. And I, that's who I'm comparing myself to. So I'm, I'm inviting contempt on myself, not on victims, not on, you know, the... Well, I don't um, know. I, you have Jewish heritage. I also have Jewish heritage. And, like, there are a lot of really grotesque jokes yeah. that came out of Judaism and the Holocaust and... No, I, I strongly adhere to the premise of, of his joke, which is that um, I'm part Irish, I get to make the Irish jokes, and I'm part Jewish, I get to make Jewish jokes, and, yeah. you know, everybody else back off. Um, and also, like, offence is the worst thing. Like, we live in such a sheltered society if yeah. we genuinely feel that we are wounded as humans by being offended. Yeah. Dude, I know. Like, get punched in the face a couple of times. <laughs> I think, I think we could all man up a bit about, about things. Uh, like I think that. you'll find uh, calling it man up is a <laughs> Use the word advisedly. Um, but yeah, no, we, and. Lost your train of thought. You could have edited that out. I'll edit it out. But heckling, um, heckling is an interesting one. Is it. I read a long feature about com- um, comedians and 
heckling and it went into a lot of sort of famous heckles and why do people heckle and it, it didn't raise the one um, point that I might I thought might have been illuminating which is that in no other art form or performance form do you, are you setting up the illusion of a two-way conversation mm. particularly and I'm not sure if these comics get heckled more than other comics but some you know famously you don't sit in the front row of a, a comedy mm. show because you get picked on mm. and I always feel really sorry for audience members who do get picked on by those comics who do find that a good way of, you know, either filling in time or, you know, getting a bit of, getting the audience on side with them and, you know, taking the piss out of an audience member. Because the comedian is prepared, the audience member is not. Whatever they say is going to be made to sound silly and it can be a bit awkward. Um, like I said, I don't know if those comics get heckled more than others because other comics just leave the audience completely alone and they're there to perform their own mm. material and that's what they want to do but is, is it because the comic gives the impression that you're having a conversation the mm. naturalistic delivery makes you think oh I can chip in I can be funny too I, it's interesting I there's certain kinds of again this is the thing saying I don't like heckling is similar to saying I don't like comedy in that there are many different kinds of heckles as well so somebody, after a joke, chipping in and saying something is, at worst, mildly annoying. Mm. At best, a real boon for your set. Particularly for me, if early on in a rural set I get a sexually aggressive male heckler, mm. if he comes in at the right time, that can turn the audience in my favour. If I deal with it quickly, I go from being a prissy city girl into being someone quite cool and that helps me the person who won't shut up the person who steps on your punchline the person who shouts incoherently and then won't repeat themselves when you ask them what they said so you can't deal with them um, the person who slides under a table <laughs> the person who walks out the person who's having a conversation with somebody else loudly in the room those are all disruptive, unpleasant situations that are not part of the conversation that you're having. They're forms of aggression. They're not... They're not something that you would ever say to a real person in real life. It's not like it's a two-way conversation. The person who laughingly or loudly, vaguely inappropriate, goes, oh, that's so true, or, wait a second, I'm German, that's a conversation. Shows your tits, or jumping in on a, like a silence that you're building, or ruining the tension, or just going woo. That's you wouldn't do that when you're talking to a person. You know what I mean? Like those are not people who are buying into some illusion that it's conversation. Those are people who are trying to ruin something that's happening. Often beer fueled. In a comedy venue. Yeah, often drunk. Always annoying. <laughs> because particularly if they're past a certain point of drunk, you cannot engage with them in a meaningful way. You can't shut them down. Yeah. So I don't know. I think there are some hecklers that are good and some hecklers that are bad. Do you prepare for them? Like, do you actively sort of rehearse what <laughs> what you will do in a particular heckling situation? Some comedians, 
super experienced ones, the way they deal with the heckle, yes, it does add value to the show because it just shows how, you know, quick they can pull out the genius. Yeah, I, I used to have um, a couple of things. When I was inexperienced, I prepared a few things. Um, but I find it more effective to deal with it in the moment now, now that I have more confidence on stage and I know it's not going to throw me completely. I'll take a second to listen to what they've said, ask them to repeat it, or if the rest of the audience hasn't repeated it, I'll repeat it back to them and establish it as a situation before dealing with it. And, and, and... I have a few sort of go-tos now that I've built up by doing that. Mm. So from having improvised responses in various situations, I, I have a few things that I'll come back to now because they work. Um, yeah, I'd say over the last couple of weeks, I have one that is just saying, oh, for the sort of vaguely helpful heckle, or someone trying to add a tag to your punchline. The old, um, thank you for trying to be helpful. It's actually really good. It, it shows everyone else here how hard it is to be actually funny. <laughs> and that, that is probably now going into my bank of, of responses <laughs> because it's worked quite well. But, yeah, I try to keep it appropriate because, like I said, just responding to a heckle as though it were a heckle doesn't acknowledge who's saying it, when they're saying it, how they're saying it, what the room is like, how everyone else is feeling about it, how many other heckles there have been that night. Like, yeah, it's the same. It's so many different things that a heckle can be. Yeah. I saw, you may have to, edit, I'll probably mangle this so you'll edit this. Um, we saw Kitty Flanagan the other week. She, she, um, she's amazing. She, um, she was doing a, a sort of routine about um, dating and how, you know, the thought had occurred to her that she, she'd sometimes been assumed to be a lesbian. She's not, but she, you know, well, what the hell, maybe, maybe I could, but uh, I think I'd be a, a waste-up lesbian <laughs> and not ready for fingers in the till. And that was sort of probably the takeaway line of the night, but then uh, she had a, a very, very vocal female fan sitting just in front of me who kept yelling um, things like, Kitty, I love you, other less coherent statements to that effect, yeah. and Kitty was, didn't even miss a beat, eyes off the till. Yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I've seen comedians who I won't name um, unleash a torrent of invective at someone who has said, you know, maybe made a contribution that was not welcome and done it in such an ungracious, frighteningly savage way that I think the whole audience just goes... Yeah, it's... Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think if that's part of your persona, mm. if that's within the kind of vocabulary of response that the audience is by now or by this point in your set familiar with then it can be really funny to just go someone really hard because you're you've presented yourself as a kind of curmudgeon and the angle that you're taking is that everybody infuriates you and that everyone's annoying and that everyone's stupid and that's you know that's an angle that some comedians take uh in which case 
you know, just rounding on a, an audience member and take, going to town on them in an articulate way can be really, really hilarious. But if you're, you know, doing like something completely different and then you Gentle just... Re- comedy. Yeah, you just reveal this like roaring savage beast <laughs> under the... Yeah, yeah I find that... Not good. <clears throat> oh, all-time heckle put down, um, or rather heckle treatment of Randy, the purple puppet, doesn't even have eyes. Managed to deal deal with all night that there was a drunken heckler in uh, near the front row of a fairly small room. He couldn't even see the man, and and he directed the most brilliant put downs all night. He, he sort of definitely added value to the show because he he found this well of comedy from this invisible, yes. slightly idiotic heckler. A very good improviser. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. He, I have a brutal crush on him, so I can't be. Uh, I can't be impartial. I'm with you there. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Just very, very, very talented man. Um, but yeah, I do like it if it's done in character. And as you say, he's got this that that character of Randy the puppet is this, you know, foul-mouthed, angry man who hasn't got his life just together. Thinking about it. Yeah, he's not a high-status character, if you know what I mean. He's, he he can have that volume because he hasn't got the height. Uh, so it doesn't come down as heavy, if you know what I mean. You're never going to have someone come up and try to punch the puppet out for hurting his feelings. No. Jim Jeffries, yes, someone will come on stage and punch you. One of the most interesting ones I ever saw was Ostentatious, oh, Sandy yeah. Goodman. Yes. Now that is a man who enjoys... He courts it. Yeah, controversy. And I saw it was an Australia Day gig out in Toronto near Newcastle. Right. And uh, I was opening for him. And a man came up and tried to knock his lights out. Wow. Uh, and he... I don't know if you met Sandy Goodman. He's six foot something. He's a huge man. He's got this slicked back hair. He's got sunglasses. He's wearing a suit. He is big man. And this guy was quite short and came up on came up onto the stage, which was just the centre of a carpet patch. It was like one of those brutal gigs. It's paid well, but like, ugh. Um, came up and Sandy just shook his hand, like clapped him on the shoulder and said, good on you, mate, good on you, turned him around and, and ushered him off the stage. And as he was walking away, started digging into it again. And it was just masterful. Like, I do not like what... Sandy does on stage, I'd, but you can't deny that he does it well. Like he's equal, you know, old school, equal opportunity, offensive, genuinely. Um, you get the feeling that there's no malice behind it, that he just <laughs> likes saying awful things for the fun of it. And so it isn't offensive, but if you wrote any of it down, it would be offensive. There's something about writing comedy down that I have a problem with. It just goes to show it's a very um, As complex... As a comedy writer, Jesus. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it comes down to a very complex judgment call whether to take, whether you do decide to be on the side of the comedian who is saying something offensive, offensive in quotes. Yeah. It's um, You bring to bear on that decision, what you know of the person, how likely it is that they are just making a straight-out racist joke or whether they're doing something incredibly complicated and convoluted, whether the humour is bouncing back and forth between literal and 
metaphorical and, and yeah. serious and not serious and ironic and, and not ironic. And, and exposing and you to yourself and exposing them to you and exposing our hypocrisies and acknowledging things that exist. That's one of the worst things. When someone finds offensive an explicit acknowledgement of something that actually exists. Mm. Yeah. That's the worst thing. If, if, if comedy is truth and truth is beauty, to take that yeah. in a deliberately malicious way, wrongly, yeah. when you should be grateful yeah, it's to like something being exposed. This unpleasant thing exists. Oh, you want comedians banned from mentioning it. How is that going to... You know, remove the problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, just waiting till you figure out who the target of the joke is is important. Imp- uh, I think very important to comedy. I don't know. It's uh, here's another random analogy because it's what I'm good at. <laughs> it's like if you were in bed or intimately with somebody who you loved how you would feel about having that transcribed (laughs) right? oh my god and that's, you know, the things that have meaning in a particular circumstance, in a particular room, in a particular place have a completely different meaning in another place I'm kind of flattening all that out because everything has to be bite-sized and and clear and unambiguous and and I think we lose something with that. That is an interesting comparison. It's an extreme comparison, but yeah, you might say that there is a kind of a bond, a kind of intimacy in in comedy where you are trusting each other further than you would just trust an anonymous public um, to get it, you know, to get something. And yet certain gestures certain things that might occur in that um, analogical uh, context might be if done in public with seem aggressive or odd or strange but in comedy you're allowed to go there you're not always going to read it right and comedy is always evolving and part of the evolution is you throw a joke out that was alright last week and it's not alright anymore okay good now I know that but now people don't get to have that moment of, oh, that didn't work. Moving on. <laughs> because it goes into the newspapers or on Twitter or, you know, that's a, yeah. a worrying thing. Because, again, any kind of defensive, it sounds defensive. Mm. And people are, are very much, I don't know if it's more now um, with Twitter or if it's always been the way, but people are always very keen to catch other people out being offensive. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a new mood, um, back to the outrage thing, of taking offence at everything, pointing out how insensitive and crass and arrogant other people are makes us feel better about ourselves in some way. Yeah. And um, people seem to be extra keen to find, to catch people out being less sensitive than... Being you know, problematic is the term. Oh, problematic. Like when Trevor Noah got The Daily Show, people you know, went back and he made some jokes on Twitter that were not okay. And you're like, dude, this is groundbreaking stuff yeah. this guy is doing and he's brilliant and he's... Amazing, is he? He's changing the world with what he's doing and you're going back to jokes that were made years ago and that are just jokes. They're just clumsy jokes that are made 
in the process of making really good jokes. Yeah. Part of the work, right? If you, I th- here's here's a thing, and I, I find this really difficult to talk about because I've always thought of myself as on the left. I've always thought of myself as part of that kind of social justice movement. Hmm. It's become so extreme and weird and orthodox that the part of me that is anti-authoritarian is Mm. bucking at it. I fucking preaching to the choir, this self-congratulatory circle jerk, I find it grates on me. And the point at which I really depart is when you ask somebody who's on the left to do a thought experiment of almost any kind that disrupts their view, they won't do it. They find the thought experiment itself offensive. Right. So like, that's a real problem for kind of science and logic and... And comedy. The <laughs> evolution of humanity and comedy because a lot of comedy is thought experiments. What if the world were this way? What if what I was saying were true? What if... Uh, this ridiculous thing were actually how I saw the world. That's sometimes the joke. And if you can't ask someone to suspend their disbelief or to... You know, here's, here's an interesting one. What if it were discovered that people of certain races were better at doing certain things? Like, scientifically... You ask somebody who is in that real left, left, left camp to take that as a thought experiment, not as reality, I'm not suggesting that that is actually the case, but say, what if they did a scientific study balanced for, like, culture and class and wealth and status and managed to counterbalance all of those interesting factors uh, and just said, purely genetically, there are some people who are geared better for doing certain things statistically, normatively, not prescriptively. It's not like they're not allowed to be bus drivers. Mm. It's just that statistically you're going to be a worse bus driver if you are Czechoslovakian, (laughs) right? (laughs) What if they did that study and it came out with, like, statistically significant outcomes? How would that affect your worldview? And they... It's an uncomfortable question because it's against the current orthodoxy but you should be able to do a thought experiment. Mm. And there are some people who refuse categorically to do that experiment in their head, or many other experiments either. And that's a problem. If there's stuff that you're not even allowed to think about for fear of disrupting an orthodoxy, Yes, neither side of politics can claim any sort of free thinking. And I'm uncomfortable even working my way through a thought experiment there. Like, I'm uncomfortable because I'm part of that orthodoxy in a lot of ways. I am on the left. I am a social justice person. I am Jewish and Asian-ish in my upbringing. So I've got, you know, I've got sensitivities. And and I'm a, a, a minority in my field... So I know what that's like to feel left out and to have jokes turned on you. But even so, the way things are going makes me really worried. 
Yeah, I think there's a culture of hypersensitivity politically, and and, pe- and you do find yourself, well, probably you don't, but I do find myself self-censoring a little bit in polite company. Yeah. Or, you know, having conversations with your partner at home is like, this goes nowhere. <laughs> like, yes. This conversation does not leave yeah. upper walls because I don't want to have it at a dinner party and then have people, you know, jump. Why can't we? Like, at a dinner party is the perfect place to talk exactly. about contentious things. Yeah. I was... I was in the law firm talking about the Catholic Church and why they don't invest in incubator technology. If they're against abortion, they should try to close the gap between incubator technology and late-term abortions so that if somebody's contemplating a late-term abortion, you can say, well, if you hold on to the baby for another four weeks, we'll adopt it as a viable alternative to an abortion. Why don't the Catholic Church do that and shut down the lunchroom? One of the reasons why I'm not a lawyer anymore was that I thought that was a really interesting thing to talk about. Mm. And they did not think that was okay. Because the word abortion and the idea of religion is not something that you can really discuss. Except in the, like, you can go, oh, pedophile priests, boo. (laughs) It's, you know... But you can't have anything more nuanced than that, right? No. We're not sort of really evolved to see a lot of nuance. We are evolved to be very, very tribal. And to we have, being civilised people, we've um, suppressed a lot of our tribal, our obviously tribal um, antipathies towards each other. We've almost formed a new tribe, whereas our tribe is the people who's really nice to people from other tribes. And the other tribe is the people who are not nice to people from other tribes. And you constantly have to sort of... Your the universities tribe. that won't let Ayan Hirsi Ali speak because uh, she's anti-Muslim. Yeah. Fuck, dude, she's allowed. She's she coming from a, a bit of a position like, of uh, being better informed than you. It's not even better informed. But if anyone has a right to an opinion yeah. worth arguing with, if you don't agree yeah. with her about Islam, if you say, well, that's not Islam, mm. cutting off clitorises is something else, and that's a discussion you can have with her. Yeah. But to refuse to allow her to speak on something in which she is an expert, mm. again, there's this thing of like... There's a cognitive dissonance between, you know, how do we, how do we deal with two minorities, in air quotes, um, when, the, when one of those minorities is not nice to another minority? How do we do, we deal with this? We tend to favour the stronger minority and often it's the women who get, you know, thrown under the bus in those little contests. Find. Yeah, who's who's the victim here? What's this hierarchy? There's this really strict, invisible hierarchy mm. that you can work through with somebody by asking them specifically who is okay to make a joke about what. Yeah. Like, and that's very instructive because that invisible hierarchy either exists in... But if it, even if it does exist, it doesn't exist in every context. If it exists and is being acknowledged by quote-unquote social justice warriors that... Uh, God, I can't even think of, of the bit... You know, a gay man is above in status a trans woman. Mm. That a trans woman can make jokes about gay men and gay culture, but if a gay man makes a joke about a, a trans woman... It's not okay. That's a that's a you know, and, and you you could you could by asking specific questions about who can make jokes about what probably figure out 
a drawn hierarchy, a pyramid uh, of, of, of lines that would be fairly consistent among a group of well-educated, left kind of people. But you take that into Italy, or you take that to Iceland, or you take that to China, or you take that to Mongolia, it doesn't hold up. It's not a real thing. Yeah. Visualising that hierarchy is being drawn by MC Escher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, well, it's drawn by MC Escher when you get the uh, right-wing Christian people who say that white men are the most underprivileged. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that one's good. Because they can't make jokes about any, anything and then you like... <laughs> Your brain turns inside out. My brain out. just exploded. Yeah, I don't want to be on either side of this argument. I know I'm, I've been arguing quite vehemently for one side of this argument, but I don't like either of them. No. Like, I don't like the people who are like, oh, fucking... Yeah. Take a joke. Being outraged on other people's behalf, or your own behalf, is complicated because within every minority, again, in air quotes, there are sub-minorities and subgroups and subgroups, and no-one should really presume to speak for their entire minority or their entire group because you find divisions among divisions and divisions and... I would rather more and more specific insults <laughs> than insults being taken off the table. Right. I would rather I would rather stereotypes that subdivide into smaller and smaller and smaller stereotypes until everyone is the stereotype of one <laughs> than this idea that you pointing to that guy across the room have to say that guy with the red shoes instead of that black guy. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe. Run it again. So people avoid descriptors because the descriptors themselves are seen as offensive because they feed into stereotypes which feed into dehumanisation which feeds into abuse. Mm. That's the argument. Yeah. Simplified, but that's the argument. I would rather that the stereotypes proliferate and that everyone has a stereotype it's not just Asians this it's Koreans and then North Koreans and then Koreans from Seoul are a particular stereotype and then Koreans from this particular suburb of Seoul have a particular stereotype and then latte sipping eastern suburbs South African women have a particular stereotype yeah the the old probably false thing about Eskimos having 100 words for snow um, draws on a, a truth that we categorise things in order to survive the world. We need categories of things. Yeah. And you categorise in finer and finer detail the things that you're more exposed to. Mm. And so why, you know, people in our position can make, you know, jokes about Europeans, which is obviously patently ridiculous because there are as many different types of Europeans as there are, you know... um, but we will not see a great, any great difference in humour between Swedes and Danes. Mm. Ask a Swede what the Danes are like, and oh my God, they, they will go on forever. Yeah. Ask a, a Danish person from a city what a, you know, someone from the country is like. Ask someone from this Danish village what the people from the other village are like. Yeah. They will be able to go on for, they'll be able to fill a book on how different they are. They're it's all the to me. <laughs> The, the narcissism of small difference and comedy relies on again that tribalism taking the piss out of another group yeah and um, who your other groups are become more and more defined but you know fr- from a great distance you just can't see the difference for the, between you know this tree and another in that great big forest of people yeah I think 
maybe what I'm arguing for is an acknowledgement that we will always notice difference and that taking away vocabulary is not the way to make difference more acceptable. I think noticing difference and acknowledging difference is or can be a route to celebrating difference. And I would rather live in a world that celebrated difference than a weird world that pretended we're all the same. Yeah. Because... We're not, and that shouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. We're not, and it's not a problem that we're not. (laughs) Eh, Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. But I think uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast. So uh, where can people find you online? How can people follow you? Oh, um, I'm at Penny D. That's Penny... P-E-N-N-Y-D-E-E on Twitter. Um, I pop up sporadically in the pages of the Oz when I have an idea for a story. Um, Yeah, Twitter. And read the annual Culture magazine because it'll have her fingerprints all over it. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, You're having tea with Alice. Thank you. Thank you, Alice.